Welcome to Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals, hosted by certified financial planners Justin Brownlee and Jared Machen of Brownlee Wealth Management. The only podcast dedicated to those of you in the oil and gas profession to help you optimize investments, lower future taxes, and grow your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Welcome back to another episode of FPOG, Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals. This week on the podcast, we're talking about why uh, high-income millennials are broke. And specifically, we're going to be unpacking a Bloomberg article that talked about how um, over a third of the people making $250,000 a year were living paycheck to paycheck. We're going to talk about how living paycheck to paycheck the right way is actually good financial planning. We're going to talk about the inflation of lifestyle and expectations over time. And we're also going to talk about the private equitization of of every industry uh, and how that's impacted the the consumers. All right, Justin, but before we dive into some of our talking points, it's it's worth painting some context around the article, right? Because it's such a seemingly outlandish headline, and we'll talk about whether or not that's the case. But a couple of things that really I want to call out is you know, this article, it's at a third of people making $250,000 a year. We're living paycheck to paycheck. So it's not every single person. Um, and right, we don't know. Another point is we don't know where these people were doing this from, right? It's if you're living in New York or LA or really a high expensive market and you have a remote job, you've you've kind of signed yourself up for that. So that's another thing. And then the final thing is we don't know what these people are saving, right? So you could be living paycheck to paycheck and fully fu- funding both 401ks, or you could be living paycheck to paycheck and not setting aside any money. And I don't think the the survey delineates that. So there's a lot of like gray area here and it's just, you know, it, it's traditional media just trying to get a ton of clicks, but I think like is a good starting point at saying of just taking a step back and saying like, "Hey, take this article with a grain of salt and not as gospel truth." But but we'll kind of explore and unpack that. What what do you want to add there? Okay, so this has been one of my favorite topics to think about for the last few weeks or so, uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna play a little bit of a, a counterpoint to what you just said. I think that this is one of the rare articles where the facts inside the article are somehow much worse than what the title says. Uh, with one caveat, uh, you you know you focus on that paycheck to paycheck uh, description. That is that is really a, a tough thing to gauge. Just like you mentioned, I mean, you could easily live paycheck to paycheck on your take home pay. Uh, but still be maxing out um, 401k and HSA contributions. Uh, I mean, so you could theoretically be putting tens of thousands of dollars uh, into investment accounts and in, in, in qualified retirement plans. Uh, and so is that really living paycheck to paycheck? Uh, that's certainly not a destitute financial situation like that term implies. Okay, but I want to I want to quick play that counterpoint. So I do think part of this article, um, the actual data inside the inside the article is is worse than the headline. And here's what I mean, uh, Jared. You mentioned over one third of Americans making more than two hundred fifty thousand a year are living paycheck to paycheck. But when you look at the data, they bifurcate millennials from boomers. And so boomers, almost no one's living paycheck to paycheck, 21%, which that's expected. They've already bought so many assets over the course of their life. Those assets have exploded in value. Uh, But millennials is where it was really alarming. 
over 55% of millennials making $250,000 a year or more describe their financial situation as paycheck to paycheck. So yes, one third of Americans, but if we just zoom in on millennials and keep in mind, millennials today are about age 30 to 44, 42, somewhere in there. So, uh, I mean, we're not, we're not talking, you know, 10 years ago, you, you always thought of millennials as, as college graduates and that's kind of how it goes with generations. If you fast forward 10 years, they're in a different life stage. But uh, I mean, we're talking about people that are 40, 42, 43 years old and uh, over 55% of them saying they are living paycheck to paycheck. Um, so I do want to uh, throw that out there. Now, I want to kick it back to you, Jared, because I do want you to kind of, we want to hit on this at the beginning and at the end. Uh, I want you to talk a little bit more about good financial planning and, and how that essentially leads you to a place where you are kind of paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. So good financial planning should be living paycheck to paycheck. And I know that's controversial, but what I mean by that is, is like intentionality, right? Every dollar should have a job, right? Because if you have a ton of excess cash flow coming in every month and it's just kind of sitting in the bank account, it's not it doesn't really have a job, right? So you're not living paycheck to paycheck, but you know, you're probably suboptimal from a tax savings perspective because you're not maxing out retirement accounts. You're not saving for big purchases or retirement or sabbatical or, or whatever, you know, gets you excited financially, right? Like so this involves intention, right? So get, like good financial planning is managing your cash flow and managing your cash flow well is giving every dollar a job. And the result of giving every dollar a job is that as those dollars are assigned to the necessary spot, the what you have left over at the end of the paycheck, basically cash flow that is unassigned should be a very small amount, right? And so in, in one sense, we do want to live paycheck to paycheck, right? And that's why we kind of added the caveat because not all those people are created equal because we don't know how much they're saving, what the allocation looks like to qualified retirement plans and things like that. But really good financial planning is setting intention and giving things a job, right? We, of course, we would be huge advocates of having an emergency fund, being liquid enough, but there should be an aspirational sense of, hey, I'm going to give a dollar a job because, and we'll, Justin and I, we'll talk, about, we'll talk about this more, but like, if you don't, that's where lifestyle, inflation, inflation of services, it really just can eat at your excess cash, right? Like, like if you don't make a conscious decision, companies are trying to decide this for you. So living paycheck to paycheck in the sense that you're really strategically allocating your money intentionally, we would emphatically endorse that decision. So that's what we we mean by living paycheck to paycheck. Love that. Every dollar should have a purpose. Um, every dollar should have a job. I love that framing. Okay. Last thing I want to share before we go into the, the different topics we want to talk about. Bloomberg. They're telling us that over 55% of millennials making more than 250000 a year are living paycheck to paycheck. Our anecdotal experience really backs this up. Uh, in fact, you know, I, I, I said that the article ended up being a little bit worse than the headline in the fact that, gosh, most millennials with ultra high incomes are, are you know, they don't have any discretionary cash. Um, our anecdotal experience would, would back this up and more. And so here's, here's just, maybe I'll try to summarize this in two minutes. So Jared and I, we own Brownlee Wealth Management. We are a fee-only RIA. Uh, so we serve individuals and families, manage their assets, do financial planning. Now, 
One thing that's a little bit unique about our firm, the vast majority of wealth management firms charge a percentage of assets. So if you hand the firm $3 million uh, for the investment firm to manage and they charge 1% on those assets, they're going to charge you $30,000 a year to manage a $3 million portfolio. Uh, we, we are a little bit unique in the sense that we do a flat retainer uh, model. So we will manage assets and, and do financial planning, wealth management at a flat fee. Now, I think because of that and because I, I do think our content a lot of times, you know, really resonates with, with someone who's 40 uh, more than most investment firms. Um, so I, I think for those reasons, our unique fee structure and all of the content we put out, uh, we do get a fair amount of 35 to 45 year olds. Uh, right now, our client breakdown is and, and Jared, I'm kind of thinking out loud, so I don't even know if this is perfectly spot on, but I think we're probably 75% of our clients are at retirement or within three years of retirement. And then 25% of our clients are what we would call accumulators. They are 35 to 45 years old and um, you know, maybe they retire in five, 10, 15, or 20 years. Uh, so they have a really high income, but they're not, you know, they're not going to retire in the next year. Most of you hearing that, if you're not in, if you're not a CFP, you're probably hearing that and thinking, well, 75% of your clients are retirees. Like you are really tilted to work with 60 year olds. And oddly enough, uh, we are kind of on the extreme end of investment firms in the sense that we talk to way more 40 year olds than most firms do. Um, so most firms have a, a 96% 60-year-old breakdown and, and maybe 4% of their clients are, are 35 or 40. And so because of our, our content and because of the way we uh, charge clients, uh, I do think we talk to a whole lot more 35 to 45-year-olds than most. So I am kind of, and, and Jared, you can kind of tell me if I'm off on any of this, but I'm going to essentially give you some stats of the 30 or 40 meetings we've had in the past couple of years with the younger demographic, with older millennials. So Bloomberg is saying 55% are living paycheck to paycheck, even with a very high income. I think if you add two parameters, it gets way worse. So I think 90% of millennials are living paycheck to paycheck even with a $350,000, $400,000 income, if you, you kind of tweak how you're looking at the parameters and you add older millennials with two plus kids. So if you are, a, if you are in that millennial category, but you already have kids, I think you're going to be spending a ton more than a you know, 28-year-old single person who might still technically qualify as a millennial. And then the second parameter... If you are not receiving any family gifting, and so what I mean by that is if your parents or if your in-laws are not giving you any uh, annual gifting, so the IRS allows uh, you to gift 16000 a year to a, a family member tax-free, and you can double up and you know your parent could give you and your spouse uh, 32000 uh, you could quadruple up. Both two parents could give you and your spouse sixty-four thousand. You can do that tax-free. So uh, you know, if you're a, a parent and you have, you know, let's say four or five, ten million dollars, uh, you're probably thinking about estate tax, and it is a good idea to gift 
16,000 a year to all of your kids to just get that out of your estate and into their, into their balance sheet. If you are receiving family gifting, you're probably not living paycheck to paycheck. But if you have two plus kids and you are not receiving any family gifting, I think the number is 90% of millennials in that cohort making over 250,000 a year would say that maybe it's not paycheck to paycheck. That's a little extreme. Jared, what's a better way to put that? I think the, the more accurate way to put that is your non-retirement savings are going to stay mostly stagnant over a two or three year period. I like that. That's that's better framing. That's yeah, that, that's more accurate framing. And I would say like uh like another way to describe this, I would say like they're the type of person who has a large delta between uh estimated expenses and actual expenses. Right? Because like they they kind of loosely track it and they spend a lot more than they think and there's a lot of one-off projects they don't really plan for or decide, "Hey, do I have enough to do this or set aside excess savings?" So they think they really spend one number, but they don't you know, they haven't strategically given everything a job. So it just kind of all those expenses creep and expand and fill the space uh, that's available to them because of the non-aggressive uh, brokerage savings. Great point. I'm so glad you said that. That is that, such a critical thing. A lot of people listening to this, and, and by the way, the anecdotal data that we've accumulated, the 30 or 40, you know, meetings that we had with millennials. Jared, I, I was thinking about this and I don't know if you think I'm wrong, I could only think of one or two people we met with in the past two years that were spending less than 15,000 a month. Yeah, that's right. For, yeah, for a, for a millennial family, that's, that sounds about right. And the average or median expenses across the 30 or 40 families we talked to uh, was 20,000 a month. Now the incomes were kind of split. I mean, it was everything from 250,000 a year up to about 3 million a year. Um, most of the incomes, if we, if we, you know, the, the, there's a bell curve there, but the vast majority of incomes were between 350 as a household income up to about 650 or 700. So most of the people we talked to were in that level. Um, last bit of data I'll share. When we look at the 30 or 40 people we talked to, there really wasn't excess non-retirement savings until household income passed about 500 or 550,000 a year. So that was kind of the shocking thing. If you were making 400,000 a year, you were, from what we saw, people were not consistently saving thousands of dollars a month into a non-retirement brokerage account. There was not excess cash every month. Uh, but once your income passed 550, thousand and above than there was. And so anything you would add or tweak to that? No, no, I would say that's great context. I'm I'm excited to get into it because there's probably some people listening that are just their jaws have not re- come back from having dropped at the at the audacity of, of that statement. So like I, I, I let's get in let's get into the math, right? Because like one of the first points is it's it sound it sounds on the surface it does sound absurd and you would say it's even worse than it appears, but let's talk about gross pay and just do some really basic math, right? Because like it, it sounds so like that sounds like so much money and and it is a lot of money. We're not saying it's not a lot of money, but but talk talk through some of the like the things that make a difference between gross and net pay and what that means for like okay. 
what, what does it say you make and then what do you actually get? Okay, great point. Your gross pay. So when you think about a salary, let's say that you know your household income is 400000 a year. That's what the offer letter that your company is giving you is, is, is going to say. That's what your gross tax return might show. But your take-home pay is very different because there's uh, six different things that come out um, before you get you get your your final dollars. So one FICA payroll taxes. Jared, what's the FICA breakdown? I think it's it's six point like two percent. Yeah, six point two one point four five on Medicare. Okay, so what I did there is yes, you do have a gross number, but you have to pay FICA taxes. You have to pay Social Security and Medicare tax. And with a four hundred thousand dollar income, your uh, average breakdown there is a little less than four percent. So you are losing 4% of your gross pay to FICA taxes. And FICA is pretty egregious. You know, you, you're paying tens of thousands of dollars before you even start paying income tax. Uh, so one, FICA taxes, that, that goes off of your gross. Two, income taxes. Uh, fortunately, if you're in Texas, Florida, or you know, the other states with no income tax, you don't have state income tax, but you do still have federal income tax. And if you're making 400,000 a year, your effective tax rate, if you're maxing out 401k pre-tax and HSA uh, and getting a standard deduction and getting some of the other pre-tax deductions, your average tax rate is going to be 20%. So if we're at 400,000 gross, well, uh, your 20% of that is going to go to income tax. So one, FICA tax, two, income tax, three, 401k contributions. I put in 10% here. So if you're making 400,000 a year, 10% of your uh, income goes into your 401k pre-tax. That maxes it out rather quickly, about midway through the year. Um, And then after you've maxed it out, uh, I have another continue with the 10% to do after-tax backdoor Roth uh, within your 401k. So FICA, income tax, 401k contributions, health insurance premiums, um, HSA contributions, uh, about two, three, five percent total with those two, and then the sixth and last one, other benefits like life insurance, disability insurance, a uh, legal benefit. Um, so just different different benefits that you can sign up for during open enrollment. So between those six areas, even if you have a gross number of four hundred thousand a year, your net number is going to be sixty percent of that. So your take home pay is now. 240,000 a year. That comes to a perfect $20,000 a month. Jared, our anecdotal evidence, do you remember among the 30 or 40 families we've met with who were millennials, who were about 35, 45 years old, what was the median monthly expenses across all of those 30 or 40 people? Median anecdotal living expenses were 20,000 a month. Yes. And what did we just go through? After you look at your gross paycheck, taking out all of those deductions, your take-home pay, if you have a $400,000 income, is $20,000 a month. Really, really quick disclaimer. I know that some of you are like seething, listening to this, thinking, who is spending $20,000 a month? Who are these animals? And you know, I think it's easy to look at your mortgage or utilities and stuff like that. But when we unearthed expenses, we really tried to peel back the onion and say, okay, so how about vacations? I know those happen, you know, a couple times a year. Did you add those into the monthly budget? 
Okay. And then every Christmas, do you go to see one of your families? Did you add that in? Uh, Youth sports, did you add that in? Um, All of the different things you're doing with with your children. And so really adding literally, not, not just what does your budget say, but if you had to, if you could magically stop working and, and you could get the exact amount of money you needed every month to live the same life you are now, uh, babysitter, going out to eat, groceries, everything, um, that number came in at a median of 20,000 a month. Um, and again, only one or two people we talked to were under 15,000 a month. Um, so what do we think? Anything before we go on to natural lifestyle creep in the second point, Jared? I would just say for the 401k contribution, that sounds like a lot, 10%, but that's that's table stakes, right? Like the generate like the generation preceding millennials had a pension, right? So so that may produce half of their retirement income, right? So you only had to save half like so a, uh, somebody from an older generation with a pension might have to save half as much, right? So this this is aggressive retirement saving, fully funding it, right? Plus some after-tax or fully funding two 401ks if it's a, a dual income household. But that's not, that's not crazy savings. That's not maybe even going to get you where you need to go, right? And already you went from, you know, 400,000 and the other that's the other thing I'd call out is 400,000 is is substantially more than the $250,000 number that that this article refers to as the baseline. So yes. Um, yes. Yeah, so we're we're create, we're doing a, a lot of uh we're we're being generous in our assumptions and it's really easy to see even right off the top how quickly things move, right? So all of these things I would say are kind of fixed expenses and and you don't really you don't really have a ton of control over any of these things, right? Some some employers may offer the benefits paid. Some some employer may pay for all your health insurance benefits. You could choose to save less in your four hundred one k. I don't know if that's advisable, but right there's some there's some nuance, and you could debate maybe three to five percent of this, but it's but it's in the ballpark, right? But but really, this gets to the point of okay, now we're at the the twenty thousand a month number that you said was the median number. Let's talk about like lifestyle creep and the inflation of expectations, right? Because like that, that still is, you know, a, a really big number. So how, how did that, like, do we think that's a reasonable number? Um, and how, how did that number kind of come to be so big? Yeah. You know, I want to start with inflation of expectations. And a lot of what we're talking about with this topic is not necessarily due to the recent inflation explosion. So inflation over the past year or two has been a huge problem uh, and you really feel it. Uh, but really, a lot of the reason why we're where we are now with with, you know, a, a family of four or five and let's say the parents are 40 years old and they're spending 18, 19,000 a month. That's less about the inflation of the past year and more about the dynamics of the past 20 years. And Jared, we were talking before we started recording, uh, but there really is a very different expectation, even of of what a starter home would be today. And I mean, you almost look at at, at starter homes that that everyone is, is buying today. It would have been on a magazine 15 or 20 years ago. I mean, it's just a completely different expectation level than than I think what our parents had. Yeah, that's right. And like, I'm looking at this great chart. It says average and median square foot uh, for a new single family home in the U.S. household. In 1975, um, it was just about 1,600 square feet. Okay. Um, and and the average number of household, uh, the average household size was three members. 
And, and this only goes to 2015, but and we'll, we'll share this chart in the show notes. But by 2015, uh, the average square footage was uh, 2,700 and the average household size was 2.5. So, so there was a decrease in the average household size, but a more than doubling in the square footage, right? So that's that's putting some hard numbers to that idea of like inflation, like expectations have inflated, right? And I would even argue, like if you looked at the average quality of parts from a home in 1975 to a home built today, like there's probably a discrepancy in 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 the base the base package uh, between those two homes. But interesting, interesting anecdote to kind of support support that idea. It's interesting you say that because I remember, you know, growing up, I remember the first home my family lived in and then my parents upgraded, you know, kind of when I was in middle school or or somewhere around that time. And it was such a big deal when we upgraded that our new house had granite countertops. Um, Can you imagine a, a starter home today not having marble or granite or some, you know, hard, nice looking stone? Yeah, it's, it's just different. Yeah. So I, and I also think natural lifestyle creep, I think you make a great point there. Uh, I really, I, I think the way I would, I would coin this is if you're still in your starter home and if you have not bought a new vehicle in five years, so let's say that you are 32 years old and let's say that you have no kids or maybe you have a, a one or two you know babies or toddlers. Uh, what, what I'm trying to say is, if that's your situation, you're still living off of your starter budget. So if you continue driving those cars that are five years old, and if you can drive them for another decade, which is, you know, a super Dave Ramsey would say that's a super weird thing to do, but it's good to be weird. That's great. And you are going to beat this. Like you're going to beat the Bloomberg article and you are going to have plenty of extra income. If you stay in your starter home forever, you're going to beat this. If you bought a house six years ago and your monthly payment is $1,800 a month, um, you are going to beat this. The problem is most of you are going to get smoked out in the next five years. So what I mean by that is like you've got this starter car, you've got the starter home, and your budget is very manageable right now. My money is on most of you are getting smoked out in the coming years. Jared, what do you think about that? I agree, right? And like compounding works both ways, right? So the lower your base expenses, inflation, like your expenses and expectations will naturally inflate over time. So the lower they start, right? The lower their terminal value is. So there is benefit to like sticking out your starter home and starter car and all that stuff. But I I do think naturally like inertia moves you up, right? And having kids and if your kids want to go to private school, play sports, anything like that, it just naturally moves things up. And right, just like like a new SUV is a great example, right? You could spend eighty thousand dollars on one of those things easily, and it has more in common with a, a spaceship in in the early two thousands than a car. Then, right? Like it's just the technology is night and day, uh, and whether or not you need that, right? That's probably another conversation, and and you know, involves hey, you being intentional about spending, but you know, we're we're comparing base, right? You're comparing an SUV twenty years ago to an SUV today. The cost may have doubled two and a half x, but there's also been a feature increase. Um, but the question is, like, do you need the feature increase? But that's just another anecdotal uh, example of right how expenses have really not spiraled out of control, but how easy they can spiral out of control because because the base technology that is in some of these 
uh, some of the things that, that we buy and live on and have lived on for a long period of time. That's a perfect lead into our next point. Um, I do want to share real quick. I wrote an article on this and I mentioned this in the article. Uh, getting smoked out of your starter budget has happened to my family personally in the last few years. So when I started Brownlee Wealth Management and you know, I, I kind of love being transparent about my own finances. Uh, and like we've loved on this podcast talking about how much of our balance sheets have, you know, been been put into the business and stuff. Uh, but three years ago, when I started Brownlee Wealth Management, we were in our starter home. Our monthly mortgage on that thing was like $1,600 a month. Um, we had two paid off cars, I believe. And so the amount of expenses tied to home and cars was just nothing. Uh, now we fast forward a few years and what's happened is our oldest kid is now eight. Um, he is now playing, you know, serious sports. We need way more space. And uh, we, we moved in the process of that. So our monthly budget, like we were playing small ball a few years ago and we were doing that purposefully so that I could start the business, right? So our monthly budget was around 7,000 a month. It has almost doubled in the last two or three years. And it's because we let go of that starter home and we have way more vehicle expenses. Uh, so again, if you're able to hold on to your starter budget, uh, great, and, and you're gonna benefit from that. Uh, but at some point, you're probably going to need a bigger car. And uh, oh, I, I don't think car prices are coming down. One, I don't think the industry is getting fixed anytime soon. And two, it would be pretty unique for an industry to recover and, and give all of that savings to consumers. Once cars have been able to charge uh, $40,000 for a used minivan, it is really hard to go back on that. Uh, so long story short, I think a lot of people are gonna get smoked out and their budgets are going to explode. Uh, in the next five years as, as if they upgrade and get bigger things. Uh, okay. What's our next point, Jared? I'm still thinking about that 1600 a month mortgage number. Cause that's like literally the cost of a studio in downtown Austin today. Um, it's just, and, and you know, when you, when you sold that home, it wasn't that long ago, but, but I think, right. Let's, so, you know, things are inflating, right. E expectations are inflating. Things are getting better, but also right. Like, Companies have an agenda, right? And they are executing on it flawlessly, right? And this is really the big third point that, that we want to talk about, like the private equitization of every service and industry you interact with, right? Everybody's moving, trying to move upstream, charge for more, get more of your wallet share and get you, right? right? They have an economic incentive for you to grow your expectations and to just, you know, get more of your wallet and market share. So let's let's talk about like a few of the big industries we're seeing this in and then also kind of what that means for all of this expense and spending and and financial planning. Awesome. So think about a private equity firm. They make money because they can buy a business and they can take control of that business and figure out a way to provide better service at a way higher price and do so while keeping expenses low. So that is the private equitization of something. Um, so the first, first point, and, and there's a handful that we'll go through, housing. What has happened in the housing market? And, and when we say this, we're kind of saying, part of this is maybe inflation over the past 20 years, but, but really it's, it's almost not inflation. It's more that 
what you're getting is so far beyond what was offered 20 years ago. But that's happened because developers and, and business owners have found a way, or massive corporations have found a way to charge way more. Um, and so housing, Jared, how have we seen this in housing? Yeah, I mean, right, kind of getting back to what we were talking about, right? The price of a starter home increasing, right? Ancillary, I, I think companies paying, uh, like companies in institutions getting into the single family space where you can, you know, kind of rent in perpetuity and have your lawn care taken care of and have all of these ancillary services. I see it at my apartment complex with like a valet trash service and something that nobody was asking for 10 years ago, but it's a great thing that to add to, to jump up rent, you know, 50, a hundred dollars a month or whatever it is for that service. So you're seeing it everywhere. Where else, Justin? Yeah, I think the stats you gave. Um, so the average starter home size was 1,600 square feet um, a generation or two ago. Today, or this was 2015, your stat was, it's 2,700 square feet. So what's happened is, is developers or even, I mean, even DR Horton. So you think about the five different mega, mega corporations that are just buying all of the land in North and West Houston and developing massive new neighborhoods. They've also figured this out too. Um, they figured out that, hey, instead of selling a lot that's a, a fourth of an acre, let's sell like an 8,000 square foot lot. Um, let's, let's make the lot smaller and we're still gonna be able to charge on a price per square foot basis. So it's unit economics. Um, it, it's a pretty obvious deal that if you can move houses that are 3,000 square feet instead of 2,000 square feet, um, that's going to be a really profitable endeavor for you. So really what we've seen here, and, and this gets way worse as you get into, into town. So you think about, you know, you try to buy a house today in, in Memorial Villages or, or Tanglewood. Um, and well, there, there's not an 1800 square foot home for sale. And why, is, why are there not any 1800 square foot homes? Well, for the past decade, Developers have bought every one of them that they can. They've torn it down and they've built 6,000 square feet. And that's a really profitable business to do that. And it's made developers a lot of money over the last decade. So yes, housing has got more expensive. Yes, land is more valuable than it was 10, 20 years ago, whatever. But there's also this dynamic where the only offering in, in, in some places is a huge home. You don't need 4,000 square feet, but that's what, that's what is for sale. Because if there's 1,900 square feet available, you're probably not going to win the bid against the developer that's going to knock it down and do a new build. And so, yeah, I do think this has been a massive dynamic. And again, Jared, one of the points that we're trying to make is if you're making 500,000 a year, you don't necessarily have to say no to any of this. You can afford it. That's exactly right. And then two, right? Like the, the idea we have, we've made it 36 minutes without talking about this, but keep right. Keeping up with the Joneses and like working with people that make comparable amounts of money. It's not only that you can afford to do it. It's everyone around you is also doing it. Great point. How have we seen this with cars? Um, we talked about it a little bit, but just right. The fact that the average new SUV, uh, is like over 60,000 for like a full size today, which is just a crazy amount of money, right? That's that's a year at, you know, one of the better private institutions for uni uh, private universities, um, which education is another one that we'll talk about, right? But um, 
while gas mileage has gone up, these cars have gotten more technologically advanced, but, um, and the percentage of people buying SUVs and pickup trucks. So, so the most expensive cars that has been increasing over time, people are moving away from sedans, uh, and taking on those cars with those higher notes. So, right. Like our consumption's changed that way. And, and the cars have gotten more advanced. And I think this is just such a perfect example of, of kind of, you know, a business making a, a mer making a, a morph over 20 years. So cars in the 1990s, uh, trucks or SUVs, I believe they were 25% of what automakers produced. So remember that late 1990s, about one fourth of every car that was made was a truck or an SUV. Now, if we fast forward to uh, Ben Carlson did awesome research on this. 2013, uh, it had moved from 25% to 50%. So in the matter of about 15 years, uh, the amount of trucks, SUVs that were were made relative to sedans or minivans went from 25% to 50%. But what's crazy is the four years from 2013 to 2017, Trucks and SUVs went from about 50% to 70%. And if you think, go back to the 90s, trucks and SUVs have, were, were the you know, small portion of what automakers created. They are now the vast majority of what's offered. Uh, Wall Street Journal did a feature on this a few years ago. Uh, there are major automakers that have, have, have literally phased out sedans. They, they do not make cars. Um, so car makers have stopped making cars. They only make vans, SUVs, trucks. And this was a purposeful business decision. If you own Toyota, I mean, it kind of goes back to the housing. It's, it's you know, kind of basic unit economics. If, if your margin on a, uh, you know, Toyota Highlander or, or just any massive truck or SUV, if your margin is 15,000 on that, and if the Corolla only makes you 4,000, Well, this is kind of a simple equation. If you're able to get away with it, just stop making the Corolla. Only make the enormous cars. Uh, Jared, you mentioned an $80,000 SUV. That's a Ford Expedition today. We're not even talking about a Tesla or a Range Rover. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about, because we have any, oh man, this is a whole nother one. Yeah, college, right? Like the, uh, and and that one, I guess we won't spend as much time on because it's, I like some of these are more subtle, right? Some of these are data, but I think college is one of those ones where it's gotten so much media attention and like everybody knows that like co- like inflation of college has just greatly exceeded like average inflation, right? And of course, uh, universities are doing more to right retain students and it's all about building university centers and all these amenities and all these things that you go to a university for that that are above and beyond the actual learning experience, right? And then you know, the, the whole loan debacle where it's just really easy to finance and right. It's just the administrative expansion of universities, right? There's a whole, there's, there's a multitude of just evidence, but that's kind of more generally available. But college is another one of those things where it's huge, hugely expensive and it's been inflated and, and there's always been perception of, Hey, a college degree is worth it because it impacts your lifetime earnings. So a lot of people will just sign up for that and not really do a return on return on invested capital calculation to figure out, okay, what's the incremental benefit of university A and university B and major A and major B, um, which I think people are starting to do now, but that's one where, you know, it's a huge expense. And, and over the last 30 years, it's, it's really gotten out of control. So this is going to introduce a, a huge idea into this whole topic. 
And that is industries and services have become brilliant in, in tapping into the credit markets. And so if a service or industry is able to get you to finance something, they can be a part of your monthly budget. Uh, and that is a big deal. A huge reason why cars are more expensive in addition to just making only SUVs instead of sedans. A huge reason why cars are expensive is uh, they are they can push you through their financing department with pretty little underwriting. College, I think this is the beginning and middle and end of this topic. It is all about the ability to finance it. Jared, if you are a 35-year-old and you have $400,000 in student loan debt and you file for bankruptcy, what happens to your student loan debt? Nothing. Nothing. You can't discharge it. Now, if you file for bankruptcy, what happens to, let's say, your credit card debt or housing debt or car debt? It is eliminated with bankruptcy, depending on the type of debt that you have on that on those cards. Most yes. of the time. Yeah. Depending on the bankruptcy, depending on the type of debt, et cetera. But you have the ability to get rid of debt in some cases through bankruptcy. That is impossible with student loans. Um, so colleges have uh, essentially have a ability to limitlessly increase what they charge because you can get financing for it. And an 18-year-old can go get a loan for any amount and do that. And so we have seen the expense there just increase above and beyond anything we could possibly imagine. Anything else before we go on to the last three? No. Awesome. Um, these are a little bit quicker. Uh, youth sports. Um, the McKinsey consultants have gotten to youth sports as well. Totally different than when we were kids. Uh, I remember playing bitty basketball and I think my parents, you know, paid $8 for a t-shirt and, you know, you showed up to practice in a game once a week. That was about it. If you want to play a, a sport at a public Texas high school, I mean, you basically need to take the path of a McDonald's All-American today. It's unbelievable what has happened with youth sports. And, and I mean, we are talking about serious businesses that now run youth sports, youth cheerleading. Uh, it is amazing what these companies have, have done to basically say, I am going to get more of your wallet share. I am going to find a way. Maybe I'm getting $40 a month today. I'm going to find a way to get $200 a month per kid, per season. Um, so that's a big one. Anything to add there before we move on to vacations? No, I would go with vacations. Yeah, my my father-in-law owns a, has a soccer club that he runs. And I, th that number, that $200 a year, that's not even not even in the ballpark, right? And then also you, you owe club dues, but then you also have to travel with said club. So yeah, that, that increases the, the vacation, the, the travel expense, which is really the next one, vacations. What do you want to say about that one? So this one's pretty quick. Uh, I do think this is unique among the six that we're talking about in that the pandemic inflation has just truly exploded this one. I mean, it has with cars as well, obviously, uh, but the car point we're making is a little bit different. Um, yes, it's, it's horrible now, but even before the pandemic, uh, it was amazing what car companies have been able to get out of consumers in 2019, much less today. So with vacations, we're seeing the same thing. Uh, everybody is moving up market. They're kind of taking the Seth Godin advice and, and saying, you don't need to market to everybody. You need to market to your tribe. You're not trying to make everyone in the world your client or your customer. You're trying to make a select few 
your customer. And so Disney, Disney World just announced last week they are doing another massive price increase. If you want to spend a week on property at Disney World and do all of the LastPass, Lightning Lane, FastPass, whatever they call it, I think three or four years ago, that was free. It was included in your ticket. Uh, it's not free at all. It's not remotely close to free. So if you want to do all those things, you can easily spend uh, five figures for a family of four to do that for a week. Um, and you, you, you've just seen the same thing over and over. Hotel prices have absolutely exploded in the past year. Um, sporting events. Any thoughts with this one, Jerry? A great way to look at this. So you, were you and I were talking about this beforehand, but look at the stadium, right? The experience has changed drastically, right? And like the number of suites and the immersive experiences and the quality of the stadium, right? Like that, those costs are passed along to somebody. So the cost of attending a game and it being like a, just a cheap thing to do to get outside, like those days are gone. Sporting events are um, just, you know, the, the experiences are nicer and they're a lot more expensive. I took my family to a Texas Rangers game last week. It was a promotional night. So the tickets were, the tickets were half off and like the tickets were in between first base in the outfield wall. So like pretty good seats, but not premium seats, $300 to take my family to the Rangers game. And I mentioned that, I think it's interesting. My family, when I was really young, we had season tickets to the Kansas city Royals. We eventually gave those up because we had season tickets to K-State football, um, which kind of dominated our schedule. But we had Royal season tickets. My wife's family growing up, they had Rangers season tickets. Both my family and my wife's family, we were about 15 rows up in between home plate and first base. Lauren and I checked Rangers season tickets a few months ago to see if we had the exact seats that both of our parents gave our families growing up. We checked to see how much those season tickets would be. $75,000. And Jared, it's just like you said, it's not like a natural inflation thing. It's that stadiums have basically private equitized uh, the first two or three decks of the entire stadium. So everything is a luxury seat. So, and by the way, those don't show up on CPI. Cars being $70,000 for, for an SUV today, that doesn't show up on CPI data because it's not the same car. Um, it's an apples to oranges comparison. And so the main point with all of these is that services and industries you interact with, it's not just inflation, it's that every service, every industry that you interact with, they have found a way to move up market and 10x what they charge. From the house you buy, the car you drive, the vacations you go on, the sports your kids play, the concerts or sporting events you take your family to, everything has, has actively tried to dramatically increase what they're able to charge for it. And we're seeing that on a big scale. Jared, I know we, uh, that we're, we're closing up on that point. Anything else you want to add? So I, my question for you, as we wrap up, what's the good news, right? Because like pretty much at this point, we've said, okay, 250 doesn't get you nearly as far as, you, as it once did. Um, it's really easy for your lifestyle to inflate. And private corporations are literally just fueling the fire, making it even more difficult to do that. What's like the silver lining and the good that can be gleaned from it? Okay, two good things. You can invest in public companies that are doing this. You can invest in them. You can be a passive investor and partake in these earnings growth. Uh, the reason the stock market is not that expensive right now, 
is because actual balance sheets, actual earnings look awesome. Um, now, the second thing, I also think it's just drastically easier. There's so much opportunity today. You can make way more money than your parents made. You can do it. There's so much more opportunity today. You can go make it happen. Anything you'd add to that? The last thing I would say is knowledge is power, right? Like, don't let these companies decide what's important to you for you, right? Like, this is an opportunity to take inventory. And I would say, like, good financial planning is, okay, being ruthless and cutting expenses where where it doesn't give you happiness, and then being frivolous in places where, like, spending the extra money really adds juice, right? So instead Love of just that. taking the taking what you know these companies are giving you, get really intentional about your spending. Say, hey, what's important to me as a family? Give every dollar a job and decide, okay, what what's not worth spending on? And where do I not want to accept where things are moving up market? And where and where is it totally give me joy to move up market, right? And to and to get the best of the best. So I would just say knowledge is power. So decide decide for yourself. Don't let these companies decide. I think a quick story that powerfully encapsulates everything we've talked about. In Europe, and I believe it's uh, in Asia, BMW has started charging their clients $18 a month to use their heated seats. So let me quickly make sure you understood what I just said. The car that BMW makes already has the heated seats. It's already there. But if you want to use them outside of the US, they have started charging $18 a month as a subscription service to magically make it look like BMW is a SaaS company. So that is a clear indication. BMW really does not care about your budget. They don't care about your financial well-being. They are literally inventing ways to take more of your wallet share. And what Jared just said, such a great point. Be intentional and decide what do you want to spend on? What do you not want to spend on? If you're listening to this and you're 38 years old today, if you can find a way to find an extra $2,000 a month, $3,000 a month in your budget on top of retirement contributions, on top of HSA, on top of backdoor Roth, if you can find an extra two, three thousand a month in 15 or 20 years, that's a seven figure decision, but it takes intentionality. If you're sitting here listening to us in Houston or Dallas or anywhere else, and you have you know, an income of 500,000, 400,000 or or whatever it is, it's going to be easy to let those BMW decisions take your wallet share. Don't let it happen. Be intentional. Give every dollar a purpose. Give every dollar a job. Yeah. The BMW heated seats, that's absurd. And it's probably worth its own whole other podcast. Um, But that's all we got for today. Uh, If you come across any articles you want us to talk about or any ideas for future episodes, we always love hearing from our listeners. Podcasts at Brownlee Wealth Management. Thanks. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. You can subscribe or connect with us at brownleewealthmanagement.com or send ideas for future episodes to podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed during this show or episode should be viewed as investment, legal, and tax advice. If you have questions pertaining to your specific situation, please consult the appropriate qualified professional.